Good morning. As you know, my name is Mike Neglia, and I'm one of the elders here at Gateway Church, Long Island. And as always, it is my honor and privilege to bring to you a message from God's holy word this morning. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 57. And while you're turning there this morning, please consider this quote from the Puritan John Mason. Death to a Christian is a putting off of rags for robes. Now, my assignment this morning is to preach to you to exposit the text of Isaiah 57. Now, this is not an easy task, being an Old Testament text, a prophecy given to Judah by the prophet Isaiah, who ministered to the people of that land during that time, the reigns of kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, this time period spanning about 54 years, from around 740 to 686 B.C., and what I need to do is to make application to this church at this time, which is in Christ, under a new and better covenant. And I need to interpret the text in light of the gospel, seeing Christ in it. And he is in it, make no mistake. Okay, now that my task is laid out before me, let's begin by looking at the original context of Isaiah's warning to Judah. So we need to keep in mind this morning God's coming judgment. The Babylonian invasion, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the Babylonian captivity was still, humanly speaking, quite a ways away, about 100 years and seven kings later. Last week, Caleb preached from chapter 56, the previous chapter, and the text ended with the Lord's indictment of Judah's sinful, self-centered leaders, people who should have been taking care of their sheep instead of sleeping and getting drunk. So let's set the stage for today's chapter. We have Isaiah preaching to a people against whom God's impending judgment was coming. It was on its way. The train had already left the station. This was not like God's message to Nineveh. Remember the wicked Assyrian capital where the prophet Jonah reluctantly warned about God's impending judgment in 40 days, telling them that if they would repent, that he would relent, which by his grace we know they did just that, at least that generation did. Much to Jonah's chagrin and for our instruction, it demonstrated the fact that Yahweh is God of all. See, Caleb touched on that last week, and we will speak about it again this morning, Lord willing. This warning not, is not like that. For Judah, Isaiah was telling them to brace themselves for what was definitely coming. Isaiah himself brought God's word to them for over 50 years. Now, as we know, the coming invasion would still be generations away, but it was coming to the nation. Keep that in mind. It was definitely coming. So with all that in mind, let's please look at Isaiah 57. So please read along silently as I read aloud the entire chapter. Verse 1. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. 
Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed. And there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint." Whom did you dread and fear that, so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you did not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collections of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face, and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him, and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no place, says my God, for the wicked. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. May he give us all ears to hear and the will to obey. Amen. I usually start my sermons with a joke or a story, but there is none. This text is so serious, in my opinion, and so timely that we're going to dive right in. I might be funny looking, but there's no jokes this morning. To make the text easier to swallow, I have divided the text into four sections or four points to help us focus on what the Lord is saying to Judah and to us. Point number one, verses one and two, the righteous are spared. Point number two, verses 3 to 13a, the idolatrous are scolded. Point number three, verses 13b to 19, the repentant are saved. And finally, point four, verses 20 to 21, the wicked are sentenced. Okay, point one, the righteous are spared. Here's verses 1 and 2 again. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. Okay, hold on a moment. 
I've just stated that point one is the righteous are spared, but the text clearly says that the righteous man perishes. So what gives? I should have named point one, the righteous are slain. Well, yes, but I don't believe that's the whole picture, and I don't believe that was Isaiah's main focus. Be that as it may, let's continue along this vein just for a couple more moments. The Lord is sending judgment upon the wicked, but the text begins with the death of the righteous. It says the righteous man perishes, the devout man is taken away. Now the words perishes and taken away imply that they're murdered. They're having a timely death. So here we see that faithful men's lives are cut short, possibly by the hands of wicked men. Matthew Henry says in his commentary on these verses, this very thing. He says, piety accepts none from the arrests of death. Nay, in persecuting times, the most righteous are exposed to the violences of bloody men. The first that died, died a martyr. Righteousness delivers from the sting of death, but not from the stroke of it. Brothers and sisters, I have to admit that this is a tough truth for me to swallow. You see, daily and nightly, I personally pray to the Lord for safety for myself and my family, for my brothers and sisters in Christ here and around the world. In the midst of these turbulent times, I pray that every morning and every night. And by itself, that's not an incorrect thing to do. The Bible is filled with people praying for their safety. But you see, God does not promise us freedom from suffering, from pain, or from even death. In fact, oftentimes, he ordains these very things. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Acts 9, 15 to 16, referring to the soon-to-be apostle Paul, the Lord says this to Ananias, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how he must suffer for the sake of my name. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Peter tells his, reader, his readers, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though it were something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And now back to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 8 to 11, where he recounts his Jewish credentials and then exalts knowing Christ far above that. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So there is the link to death this morning. And we all know the, the, the verse earlier in Philippians chapter 1 where Paul utters these famous words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We all know the quote, but let's see the context. Let's read on in Philippians 1, to 23. Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, 
My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul clearly understood that death in Christ gives way to everlasting life in Christ. See, that needs to be foundational to a Christian's outlook on life here on earth. Now, just as a side note, Paul refers to life in the flesh, but this doesn't have the, the negative connotations about living according to the flesh. No, he means living in this planet Earth. So to close this little side trip regarding God's providence in the suffering and death of the righteous, let us rest in these words from Psalm 116. Verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, as we return our attention back to Isaiah 57, and I do realize we're still in verse 1, let us keep in mind what we just discussed regarding the, ultimate, the untimely deaths of the righteous. Back in verse 1, we read, The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. So let's get the picture. While the faithful believers are taken in death, those who remain do not see the significance of their deaths. Something terrible is coming, and the devout are dropping like flies. So what is going on? Why are the authentic God-fearers disappearing? Well, they weren't disappearing like the Left Behind books. They weren't being raptured. They were being murdered. We've established that already. So let's see now why the Lord was doing this. Look at verse 2 in your Bibles. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in uprightness. So now we can finally reaffirm our first point. Verses 1 and 2, the righteous are spared. Yes, they are slain, but God is sparing them from what's coming. You see, the righteous man is taken away from calamity. Well, what calamity? Well, the Babylonian siege, the destruction of Jerusalem, the deportation, the 70 years of captivity. So in mercy, God takes away, by means of their untimely deaths, some of the righteous, those that are faithful to God, those that fear him. These, by their deaths, are spared the temporal agony and suffering. As Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. As the Puritan John Mason said, death to a Christian is a putting off of rags for robes. Verse 2 said, the righteous man enters into peace. So let us continue, con con consider the story of one of the final kings of Judah. So this goes forward in, in the future, past Isaiah's time, to what he was warning the people about. Now the king in question is King Josiah, good King Josiah. In 2 Kings 22, we, we read that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You see, he repaired the temple. And when he did, the book of the law was found. And when he heard what it said, Josiah was undone. In realizing the sinful state that his country was in and had been in for many generations, he was greatly convicted. So we read in chapter 23, he begins drastic reforms. He throws out all the idols that were placed in the Lord's temple by his evil predecessor. He removes the pagan altars from the high places. He expels the idolatrous priests and the male cult prostitutes. He closes down all the Planned Parenthoods. And he reinstitutes the Passover celebration, which according to 2 Kings 23, had not occurred since the days of the judges. God is long-suffering, amen? So King Josiah cleaned house quite literally. He was righteous and repentant. So listen to what happened to him. We read in 2 Kings 23 verses 26 to 27, still the Lord did not turn from his burning of his great wrath 
by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. This is what I meant when I said earlier that God's wrath was coming. I mean, while unlike the warning to Nineveh, the wrath train had already left the station and it was heading right for Judah. Okay, we know that. But what about good King Josiah, the one who enacted all those reforms? Well, we read this in 2 Kings 22, 18 to 20. The Lord says, But to the king of Judah, who sent to you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought word back to the king. Okay, that sounds simple enough. Good King Josiah, since he was faithful and repentant, will die in peace before the Babylonians come in. Okay. Let's look and see what it says in 2 Kings 23, 29, which records his peaceful passing. It says, In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. It's not what I had in mind when I think of dying in peace. But if you look closely back in Isaiah 57, you see the righteous is entering into peace. It's where they're going in death, not how they are dying. So don't miss the point. King Josiah did die into peace. God in his wisdom and mercy took Josiah away in death, in peace. He used as his means the murderous hand of Necho, the Egyptian pharaoh. And likewise, closing out point one, in Isaiah 57, verse two, we see the Lord will also do this to many of the righteous and devout believers, one of which being namely, good King Josiah. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest on their beds who walk in their uprightness. Yes, the righteous and devout and faithful will rest on their dead deathbeds. They will enter into peace, into eternal rest, in Christ. Part one, the righteous are spared. Now point two. This is longer. The idolatrous are scolded. This is going to cover verses 3 to 13a. So here in verse 3, Isaiah takes a hard left and addresses the wicked idolaters in Judah directly. But before we look into verse 3 to 13, please acknowledge the fact that the idolater in verses 1 and 2 does not take to heart, nor does he understand the significance of the taking of the righteous. See, the carnal man sees what's happening all around him, but he does not learn from it. He is so wrapped up in his own sinful and selfish pursuits that it does not even occur to him that God might be doing something all around him. So here in verses 3 to 13a, the Lord addresses the wicked directly. Now this morning, I am not thankfully going to dissect every verse and every nook and cranny of the sins of Judah. I mean, when we referred to 2 Kings 23 and 22 and 23 earlier, we saw all of the reforms that Josiah made. 
removing the idols, memorials, cult prostitutes, pagan altars for child sacrifice, and all these things that were bringing God's wrath. So that's what they were doing. And when in today's text, down in verses 9 and 10, it says that Judah went and journeyed to the king with oil and perfumes, Isaiah is most likely referring to Judah's going all the way to the Assyrian king for help against Israel and Judah. An important point Caleb made in this week's shepherding notes. Thank you so much for making my study easier. So verse 10 says that even though they were weary and exhausted for going all that way, those great lengths they took in order to avoid seeking the Lord, they did not grow faint. They didn't say it's hopeless. Rather, they renewed their strength and continued to backslide. So it's this in mind plus all these idolatrous sins and their accoutrements mentioned in 2 Kings 22 and 23 for which God's divine wrath was coming. So my purpose this morning is to highlight four categories of sin occurring in Judah in Isaiah's day and make applications to our country in the present day. Point number one, their public mocking of God and God's apparent silence, verses 4 and 11. Point number two, their brazen sexual immorality, verses 5 and 7 and 8. Point number three, their sacrificing of their children to Molech, verse 5. And finally, their self-righteousness as opposed to, to God's true righteousness given to us by him, verses 12 and 13. So let us fearfully and in humility examine each one of these. And I'm very thankful for what Brother Rob said after uh, Romans 1 was... And he says, that was us. 1 Corinthians 6 says, such were some of you. So as we look at these sins, please let us not be so haughty. Wow, we don't do those things. Because in our hearts, we do. With that in mind, in humility, let's start with number one. Their public mocking of God, verses 4 and 11. So look in your Bibles, Isaiah 57, 4. The Lord says, whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Down to verse 11. Have I not held my peace for a long time and you did not fear me? So in the context of Judah, the nation went on brazenly sinning even though prophet after prophet after prophet was sent to warn her. They had, as previously mentioned, these pagan altars set up and they eagerly worshipped other gods. The Lord didn't send immediate judgment, but he was patient allowing them generations to repent. And all the while, they were storing up wrath for themselves, a la Romans 9.22. So we know that from the context. But in our modern day, people today in our culture demonstrate, they clearly demonstrate that they have no fear of God before their eyes. They openly mock and deride the Lord. And with the internet, there's a million ways with just as many outlets to do so. And just like in Psalm 50, the Lord most likely will say to them, when you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. It's very frightening, the brazen mocking of the Lord in public. Number two, their brazen sexual immorality, verses 5 and 7 and 8. In verse 5 we read, You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree. And verses 7 and 8 reads, On a high and lofty mountain you have set up your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorials. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it, you have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. 
You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. So in Judah, in apparent opposition to Deuteronomy 6.9, where, where the Israelites were instructed to put the Lord's word on their doorposts, instead, they set up memorials to other gods there. The sexual practices have to do with pagan worship, on which I will not elaborate on here today. But it was all part and parcel to the rejecting of Yahweh as creator of male and female, as well as bucking against the purpose of sexual relations between marriage, between a husband and a wife. In our modern day, the idolatry of self-worship has mostly replaced the idolatry of worshiping multiple gods, like in the Old Testament. The altars of self-expression, of self-gratification, as well as giving free reign to any and all desires and not limiting them to the marriage bed is the religion of our modern day. Even though there are no more household gods, there is nonetheless, this is nonetheless nothing more than idolatry. According to 20th century reform minister R.B. Kuyper, he says, ultimately, all idolatry amounts to worship by the idolater of himself. Let me say it again. Ultimately, all idolatry amounts to worship by the idolater of himself. See, the Lord hated idolatry 2,500 years ago in Judah, and he hates it just as much today in our land. So don't be fooled. A lot of the sexual sin that is going on today has idolatrous overtones. It's all about worship of the self, of the me. And now we move on to number three. Their sacrificing of their children to Molech, verse 5. The Lord says, you who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. In Judah, the sacrificing of children to the Ammonite god Molech was done in order to appease the god of the underworld. As Isaiah scholar J. Alec Mortier puts it, they did it as a charm to guard against death. So here we are in Judah, they have the Lord, but yet they're sacrificing their children in order to keep the adults alive. So listen to this ghastly description of this in 2 Kings 23, verse 10. It says, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Killing their children to save themselves from death. Once again, this boils down to the idolatry of self. Now, in the modern day, it's no leap of the imagination to know what it is. It's abortion. The idolatry of self. Sacrificing my baby for my freedom, for my goals, for my desires, for my choice. Sacrificing the unborn on the altar of convenience. May God have mercy on us. And Caleb already spoke about and prayed about, we thank God for the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision. And that is evidence of his common grace on our country. It's mighty evidence of his common grace on an undeserving nation. So we praise God for that. And now finally, point number four, their self-righteousness as opposed to the true righteousness given by God. This is verses 12 and 13. Isaiah 57 says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. In other words, they will be gone with the wind. That's my title this morning. They, meaning Judah's righteous deeds, their collection of idols, the trust in themselves, 
It's like poof, and they're gone. In context, when God's judgment came in the form of the Babylonian army, there was no one to save Judah. They were taken away to Babylon, where they, there they remained in captivity for 70 years. Now, in the modern-day context, in our context, when God's judgment comes, and we know it may already be here in some respect, whatever form it takes, no amount of so-called good works will appease a righteous and just and angry God. No idols of our imagination will suffice. No amount of money given will be enough. Nothing you can draw up from deep within yourself will satiate his fierce wrath. You can virtual signal online all you want, but it won't make any difference. No amount of tears will satisfy him, not in this life, nor in the next. That song we sang earlier again, Rob, good choice by God's sovereignty. Nothing we can do will take away one of our sins. So that ends point two, the idolatrous are scolded. But now, but God... Look at verse 13b. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So this leads to point number three. The repentant are saved. So here the Lord injects much needed hope into the midst of judgment. While it is true that the wind will blow away the false gods along with those who put their faith in him, those who take refuge in the Lord will be safe. Hear the words of King David in Psalm 62.7 where he says, On God rests my salvation, my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. So here we see the promise of God that belief in him brings great reward. In our text this morning, the imagery that's used to possess the land to inherit my holy mountain, will be physically manifested in Old Testament context 70 years after the deportation to Babylon, which means roughly 170 years after Isaiah's final words of prophecy were uttered. So we know, we've been in Isaiah for two summers here at Gateway, we knew that the remnant does return to Jerusalem. We know that they come under the allowance and direction of the Persian king Cyrus. So it's going to happen physically so our text continues on in verse 14. The Lord says, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Yes, they will come back. They will return from Babylon into their land. But Christians, new covenant believers, know there's more to the story. And just like we saw that the wicked acts of the idolaters in, Ju in Judah found new expression in our modern day, we know that in Judah's return to Jerusalem lies a picture of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's continue in our text. Verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Now hold up. This is the same phrase that Isaiah used back in chapter 6. Again, thanks to Caleb for Thursday's shepherding notes. You see, if you guys do the shepherding notes and the reading, you don't have to listen to me. No, you have to come to church. Forget that. But this phrase was used in Isaiah 6 during Isaiah's heavenly vision, wherein he saw the exalted pre-incarnate Jesus Christ seated on his throne in heaven. In Isaiah 6, it says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You see, this Lord, who is high and lifted up, who is the everlasting God, who is thrice holy, this transcendent being who dwells in the high and holy place, 
who in the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 6 is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. This Yahweh of hosts also, also, also dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Look in your Bibles and read verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Oh God, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 8, 4. Brothers and sisters, do you not see the extreme contrast here in the text? The perfectly holy and righteous God and the utterly sinful and downtrodden man. Here in verse 15, we see God stooping down to save us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Okay, back in verse 15, the word contrite refers to one who is beaten down by life. And I'd add either by their own sin or someone else's sin, they are undone. The contrite man is broken, undone, humbled by God. So he, God, dwells with such a person to revive his Holy Spirit and to revive his contrite heart. In his anguish over his own sin, King David cries out in Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And he will not despise a repentant and contrite sinner today. He will welcome you with open arms if you acknowledge your sin before him, if you will not try to justify yourself. So juxtapose this heart attitude with the heart attitude of the wicked idolaters back in verses 3 to 13. We see the idolatrists were self-sufficient. They were brazenly rebellious, while the repentant know their own insufficiency. They are brazenly broken before the Lord. And here God gives his rationale for his coming mercy. Look at verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for or because the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. See, the Lord knows our makeup. He knows our frame. In Psalm 103, verses 14 to 16, we read, He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. So let's take a moment to truly appreciate this truth. The Lord, the creator of all that is, is so inconceivably patient, is so long-suffering, and is gracious toward all that he has made to the just and the unjust alike. So even though all of humankind deserves destruction and wrath, the Lord, knowing our frame, he knows our frailty, he has a gentle hand of correction for all his people. And even in his temporal punishment for the reprobate sinner, he's gentle. In other words, God will not here and now give full vent to his mighty anger. So let's continue in verse 17. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. Now unjust gain refers to sinful self-interest. The verse continues, I struck him and hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. Ladies and gentlemen, see what the text is saying here. It says the Lord struck Judah in context. He struck Judah. He gently struck Judah, leading to its exile in Babylon, which at the time of the first utterance of these words was still way in the future. And by extension, this applies to all of sinful mankind because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. God gently strikes us and we backslide further away from obeying God. That is what the text is saying. 
It doesn't say we were struck and we came to our senses, or we were struck and we believed God, or we, struck, we were struck and we were repented of our sins. It doesn't say that. The text says we were struck and continued in our backslidden condition. So something had to give. Look at verse 18. I, the Lord, have seen his ways, but I will heal him. Yes, the Lord will heal Judah, preserving them in Babylon. See the book of Daniel. He will bring them back to Jerusalem. Read Ezra and Nehemiah. The remnant will return, and within the remnant of Judah is the elect of God. And extending that to us this morning, wearing our new covenant lenses, the prescription allowing us to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord sovereignly and according to the good pleasure of his will, not according to man who wills, but of God who elects, he will heal us, verse 18. He will lead us. He will restore comfort to us and to his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Now hold on there for just another moment. Stay with me. This fruit of the lips that he's speaking about may refer to words of songs and praise to God, worship filled with thanksgiving to the Lord for his grace and mercy in saving us, and that's definitely true. But more likely, I think, in this context, the fruit of the lips refers to words of confession and acknowledgement of sin, which leads to repentance. This would link these words with the mourners mentioned earlier. The, those that cry and wail over sin, which are evidences of a contrite heart. See, the godly sorrow that leads to repentance, this is what Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 7.10. And please note that God's leading and comforting creates the fruit of the lips. In other words, he grants faith and he grants repentance, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Because by being struck all by itself, this does not produce faith and repentance. This only leads to more backsliding. No, this must be accompanied by God's saving grace. And that is only found in one place, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God's mercy, his saving grace is found only in Christ. Old covenant or new covenant, it's always been Christ. Yes, the gospel was veiled in the Old Testament. Jesus was found in types and shadows. But salvation has only and ever been by faith. You see, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, Romans 4, 3. And in Hebrews 11, verse 26, we read that Moses, in faith, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, faith. But not just believing that God exists, even the demons believe that. No, your faith needs to be in the one who took your sins away, paying for them on the cross of Calvary. Before when we read Isaiah 57, 18, that the Lord has seen our ways, but he will heal us, this doesn't mean he just chooses to ignore our sins. No, he doesn't just overlook our sins. No, he is far too holy and righteous to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, sin had to be paid for. It had to be atoned for, and we cannot pay that price. I also said that God does not give full vent to his anger while he chastises his people on earth. But he did pour out his wrath, giving full vent to it 2,000 years ago. And he poured it out on his son, Jesus, <clears throat> on the cross, wherein he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. You see, Jesus, before giving up his spirit and dying, said, it is finished. All of the wrath that was due God's elect was poured out upon him. He paid the price for his people. So praise God for sending his son to die in the place of sinners. 
But Jesus did not stay dead. No. He rose again on the third day, just like he said that he would. He ascended into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession or to pray for his people. And he will come again to judge the world and to take those that remain to be with him where he is. You see, all who die in Christ before that day will be with him instantly, whether by natural causes or by martyrdom. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Rags for robes. Rags for robes. Okay, we're almost there. I thank you for sticking with me this morning. The text of Isaiah 57, in its original context, is a comfort and a warning. The comfort is directed to Judah 2,500 years ago, give or take. The warning was for the idolatrous and the unrepentant in the land. And the comfort was for the righteous by grace and for the repentant in the land. And then the promise. And this, as well as other components, extends way beyond Judah, even in its Old Testament original context. You see, there is in verse 19 of our text today the promise of peace and salvation to the world, not just to Judah. Look in your Bibles to, in Isaiah 57, 9, 19, verse B. It says this, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. You see, the Apostle Paul refers to this very verse in Ephesians 2.17. So we're going to read Ephesians 2.13 to 18 now. In verse 13, Paul says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here it is, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. Glory to God. So here we've just spent a lot of time on point three. The repentant are saved. For they were wicked, we were wicked. For there are none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.11. Much later in Isaiah, we're going to come to it this summer, Lord willing, all of our righteousnesses are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God, Isaiah 64.6. You see, the choice to save is God's. The choice whom, the choice whom to save is also God's. By faith we exercise, the faith we that we exercise is given by God. And the fruit of our lips and the fruit of repentance is created by God. And that is good news. Amen? So what do we do now? We want to Christ. We run to him. But what about those who do not run to Christ? Well, that is my fourth and final point this morning. See, point number four is the wicked are sentenced. Look in your Bible one final time, verses 20 to 21. Isaiah says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now this is the end of the inclusio, the form of Hebrew poetry, which extremely simplified right now, means the passage began with a reference to peace in verses 1 and 2, where we read the righteous will go into peace. And the passage now ends with another reference to peace, verses 20 to 21, the wicked will have no peace. 
So the language in verse 20, the reference to the tossing sea, seems to indicate an eternal disturbance within the wicked heart, not necessarily coming from outward sources. Inside, there's turmoil. There's a tossing sea. There is no rest. Well, either way, Isaiah says that all that remains for the wicked or the unbelieving or the faithless or the unrepentant is God's unfettered, full-on, furious, white-hot, righteous, and just wrath poured out on them for all eternity in hell. Now, I mentioned earlier that God doesn't temporarily give full vent to his wrath here on earth, and that is true. Then I said that 2,000 years ago, God did give full vent to his wrath upon Jesus on the cross, and that is still blessedly true because there remains no more wrath left for those for whom Christ died because he died in their place. Jesus was their substitute on the cross. But Jesus wasn't everyone's substitute because if he was, then everybody's, every man, woman, and child that has ever lived, everyone's sins would have been paid for. And there would not be any more wrath left for anyone. But the Bible teaches that there is wrath reserved for the unbelievers at the judgment. So logically, if wrath remains for them, then Christ did not pay for their sins. In light of that, those who do not put their faith and trust in him will be lost and will spend eternity bearing God's full wrath against them in the pits of hell. You see, there will be no peace for the unsaved when they die, only judgment and eternal wrath. And since no human can tell the difference between the elect and the non-elect, we preach the gospel to all, and we are assured this very thing, that Jesus' sheep will hear his voice, and that all that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. Amen? Okay, I have three super quick points of application for you this morning to take this home with you. Point number one, Christian, be not surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Christian, persecution will come your way. Suffering is inevitable. You may be swept up in a way when God sends judgment upon this land. You may be mercifully taken away from what's coming to the land. Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 are sobering words. It says, When he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Do not be surprised. God sovereignly ordains all that comes to pass, even the death of the righteous. Point number two. Christian, repent of your idolatry. Repent of the idols in your heart. John Calvin said, every one of us is from his mother's womb an expert in inventing idols. You know it's true. Christians, don't be swept up with society's self-centered and autonomous, I am the master of my own destiny mentality. Rather, confess and repent. Confess and repent. Jesus is willing and able to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9. And our final application point is to the unbeliever. I say this every time I'm up here. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? 
Run to Christ for the complete and utter forgiveness of your sins. He knows your frame. He knows your only dust. And in his mercy, you have heard the gospel this morning. Therefore, acknowledge your sins and the fact that you cannot save yourself. Trust in the life and work of Jesus in your place, living for you and dying for you, rising again, ascending into heaven, praying for you, and one day returning for you. Run to Christ. We're promised that he'll never cast away anyone that comes to him in faith. And at the end of your life, you will exchange your rags for robes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as always in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom you hear us. I thank you for giving the people this morning ears to hear a sobering message, one without jokes and quips, one that isn't meant to entertain, but is a harsh reality. The death of your saints, the punishment of the wicked, and your great message of salvation. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would prepare us for the days to come, that you would give us faith to see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for our sake endured the cross, despising the shame. May we do likewise. I pray as I pray morning and night that you would protect your church. We know that your gospel will not be hindered, but we pray that you protect your people. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the words to speak in these coming days that you allow us to see you in all that happens. I pray that you would grant us, your people already, more gifts of repentance, allowing us to put to death the old man and woman, to say no to idolatry, to say yes to Christ. I pray you would go with us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.